little bit of your time as we open God's Word, as we take an opportunity to study and see what it says, that we enrich our lives by the hearing and preaching of God's Word. Normally, I would read the full passage, and I may go ahead and do that now that I've said that, but it's a longing. This is the longest of all the parables, and it, it covers a lot of ground. It covers 20 verses in the 15th chapter of the book of Luke, and we've been in Luke now since uh, like 2004. Um, I, I, I can't wait till we do the 119th Psalm. Probably uh, sometime around the change of the millennia. Uh, I say that in jest, but frankly, there is no greater loss than hurrying through something as valuable as the Word of God. To me, it's like a great meal. Thanksgiving, people prepare these extravagant meals and they take all day or days to get it ready. And then like a herd of carnivores, we swarm in and we pick it clean and then we run away. The whole thing culminates in about a half hour, kind of like weddings. They plan them for a year, half their life, and half hour later, it's, it's all done. All done but the shouting, as mom used to say. This morning, we want to pick back up in the 15th chapter of the book of Luke, around chapter 11. Not actually around chapter 11, or verse 11, actually in verse 11. If you will remember from last week, as Pastor Dan teed this up for me, we studied through the other two lost items in Scripture. The first, of course, was the lost sheep. The lost sheep was of great value. To the shepherd, it presented part of his income. It provided him with a source of income. When they shared him, it would have provided a source of wool. It is part of his economy, part of his nature, part of his purpose. All of us have a purpose in life. Mine is being retired, is trying to get up and let the wife out the door for work. That's my whole purpose now. I have become a coffee maker. His was to keep the sheep. The second one was the lost coin. Although the coin may not have been worth a tremendous amount of money to us, its actual dollar value may not have been much. But when 10 coins is all you have and you lose one, that one-tenth of your assets becomes huge. Someday when you all retire, hopefully, you will talk to someone about money and you'll say, it's not much, I know. And a smart money person will say, yeah, but it's yours and that makes it real important to you. That coin was important to the person that lost it. So we move into the greatest part of the parables, and including the, this, guy, this passage, the parable of the lost son. And while those things were valuable, the coin and the sheep, nothing is as valuable as a soul or a lost child. If you have a wayward child, you know the pain that it brings. If you have a kid who just absolutely is determined to go the opposite direction, you know the heartache that it brings. We're going to look at that briefly this morning. And I will read it for you. I will read the entire passage. So bear with me. 
Um, your words may look just a hair different. I'm reading from a, a different translation than most of you use, but it's my preference and has been for many years. Verse 11, and he said, Jesus speaking, a certain man had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. And he divided his wealth between them, and not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country, and there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in that country, and he began to be in need. And he went and attached himself to one of the citizens of that country, and he sent him into the fields to feed swine. And he was longing to fill a stomach with the pods that the swine were eating, and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread, but I am dying here with hunger? I will get up and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. And he got up and came to his father, but while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, Quickly, bring the best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and sandals on his feet, and bring the fatted calf, kill it, and let us eat and be merry. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life. He was lost and has been found, and they begin to be merry. And now, or now his older son was in the field, and when he came and approached the house, he heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. And he said to him, Your brother has come. Your father has killed the fatted calf because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. His father came out and began entreating him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you. I have never neglected a command of yours, yet you have never given me a kid that I might be merry with my friends. But when the son of yours come, he has devoured your wealth with harlots. You killed the fatted calf for him. And he said to them, My child, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to be merry and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Father God, as we go further into this passage, as we open it up and we look into it, I'd ask that you would give me clarity of thought, surety of speech, that you would allow those things that have challenged me through this week to be brought forward, that... Um, you would be glorified, that we would understand and see your hand at work in this passage, and that we would walk out of here with a better understanding of what it means to be brought back into the fold. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. If you'll remember from the last couple of weeks, as we started into this section, there's three groups of people here, really. We have the tax gatherers, and the Pharisees, and then we have this individual. We also have those on the outside looking in. This is a shift. Remember at the first part of the chapter, Jesus was dining with the upper echelon, or as my mom would say, the highbrow, the muckety-mucks way up high. And now the table is turned. Jesus is dining with the poor. He's dining with folks like me and you never considered myself to be anything more 
This is just an old dumb electrician. I'm just one of the guys. I'm as blue collar as blue collar can be. Okay. I get up in the morning, or I did, I got up and went to work, did a job most people either couldn't or wouldn't do, and I cashed my measly paycheck and I went home. Nothing special, nothing wonderful, I don't have a $400 suit, I don't have a $10,000 office chair, I don't have any of those things, I don't have any special title, I don't have any special degrees, I don't have anything that makes me unique from anybody else. That's the kind of guy Jesus is eating with. We would refer to them in many cases as the wretched refuse of society. Those that the religious folks would never be caught sitting next to. When Jesus spoke this parable, it's going to impact every hearer exactly where they are spiritually. It's not a flowery, feel-good story. It's not a hallmark story, okay? At the end of this story, the, pardon me, the wayward child's not going to come back and somehow miraculously save the family farm. Okay, it's not going to be a made-for-Christmas movie on the Discovery Channel or anything. Um, it's not going to be the kind of story where the kid comes back and torments dad forever and everybody hates him and he goes on to be the evil villain for the rest of his life. It's not that kind of story. Okay? It's not the kind of story that you would normally tell people that you want to make an impression on unless you're trying to reach the spiritual heart of a person. Every one of us is in this story. None of us are exempt from what is happening in this chapter, in this time. You will find yourself in one of three places, and we will cover those. It is a story that is filled with color and smell and emotion. It's full of distrust, dishonor, a struggle, a failure, success, and eventually restoration. If this parable was a large body of water and you were a ship, it would smash you around until you landed on the beach. This parable pulls at every heartstring that you might have. Open your heart this morning as we look through it. It's my favorite parable for several reasons. The first is that you can find Paul Grice, or I find Paul Grice, in the heart of the prodigal son. Hard-hearted, uncaring, unloving, defiant, mean-spirited, drunkard, everything a man should never be, I was. And many of those things I can still be. And if you'll be honest with yourself, you will find some of that in yourself. And it hurts, don't it? How many of you like to look in the mirror? You notice I didn't raise my hand. Knowing who you are makes the story even more important. Secondly, I see the father in this picture in something absolutely magnificent and mesmerizing. Unable to look away from the scene in the last part of this text, as, as I read through it so many times this week and studied it, I am absolutely amazed at the heart of the father. Oh, that my heart towards my children would always be that big, that it would always be open enough to accept all the things that they've done in my world and I could still reach out and love them. I hope and pray today, honestly, for you fathers and you mothers, that if you have a wayward child, that you not seal them off. Find a way to love them. Find a way to love them through their sin. And thirdly, it exposes the, the futility of religion over relationship. I've entitled the first part of this message, The Downward Spiral, the Spiral, pardon me. The younger said to his father, give me the share of the estate that follows me. First off, the, father, the son had no right to make the claim. He could not say legally, Dad, give me what is mine. The father had every right to take a couple of passes here. Number one, he could have literally just slapped the kid. Could have just literally put him in his place. And how many of you wanted to do that to your children? 
I mean, what, yeah, I see some hands. We've got some kids that every now and then you just think, it's about due, it's gonna happen. Storm clouds are forming on the Western Front and he's gonna get it. I have a son, I can guarantee you there were times in my life I wasn't so sure he was gonna see his next birthday, okay? The son asked for something that wasn't his. And to put his father in that kind of shame, he violated all the standards. You know, kids do things that when they're angry or they're hurt or they're jealous, they do things. And, and usually we put them in their place or we try to defuse the situation. And the father, in this case, he is astounded that his youngest son would ask for such a horrible thing. So the father has a choice to either slap him down, ridicule him, make him a, uh, an outcast in society. He could have done a lot of different things to him. It was obvious in this passage that the kid, he didn't care about his dad's reputation. He didn't care about tradition. He didn't care about the rules that governed his society. And he certainly didn't care about God. He wanted one thing. He wanted out. Have you ever wanted out? Do all you can just to get out of something? The kid wanted out. Some have said they figured there was animosity between the younger brother and the older brother. I have two older brothers. I know all about animosity between siblings. I've got a middle brother that even at the ripe young age of 61, he's a few years older than I am, he walks in the room and there is still general animosity between the two of us. We just kind of rub each other the wrong way. These two brothers were like that. The father, though, takes the unheard of step and gathers all of his stuff together and sells it. Just so we're on the same page. He doesn't sell the land. The land is his. The Jewish customs had strong, strong standards about the land. The land was everything. So what he did was he part of what the scriptures calls his living which would have been his assets other than the land. He uh, took some time and gathered together. He was probably a fairly wealthy man. It couldn't have been easy. You know how hard it is when you need to sell something quick and in a hurry. I don't think they probably had pawn shops back then, but uh, they found a way to sell his stuff, and he gathered it all together, and he gave the youngest kid a third. And the young man took that third and left. Everybody in the crowd would have been astounded. Everybody that saw it and heard it and learned of it would have been absolutely astounded that the father would take that kind of embarrassment that his son had put on him by asking for these things. And instead of slapping him down, the father gave him his wish. Those that saw him would have been astounded at the father's willingness and how this young boy had reacted. Okay? The father did the unthinkable. He gave him something that he wasn't entitled to. Why? I think because in the story, if you look at this passage as we go on, I think the father had hopes that the son would return. And he wanted to make sure that was going to happen. And as we continue on through the passage, we see the child has left. And not many days later, in verses 13 and 14, the younger son has gathered all that stuff together, and he set out, and he went to a distant country, and he squandered his estate with loose living. My mom would have said riotous living. And he did all the things that he wanted to do. He lived large. I think of some of these athletes that make all this money and then you read about their lives and how, what kind of train wreck they are. And, and sports athletes that 
at the end of their career and they've made millions upon millions upon millions of dollars and you read about them and they're living and sharing total destitution because they've spent every dime they had. This kid did the same thing. He went and spent all that he had. He lived large, he had big parties. He uh, fraternized with harlots and prostitutes and all of his new friends were always reaching into his pocket for more money. You know, it's, it's a funny thing, but it kind of reminded me of an old country song and one of the lines is, if you've got the money, honey, I've got the time. And when you're out of money, honey, I'm out of time. It's amazing how when the assets that you allow to flow so freely are gone, how quickly your false friends are shown. Kind of imagine our day and age, you'd be like pulling out your cell phone and texting your, your buddies or whatever, and they have a term for that nowadays, and it's called ghosting. When you no longer exist electronically, you know, this kid, he'd got no more Snapchats or Instagrams or TikToks or any of that other stuff. He's just a man on his own. All of his friends are gone. His bankroll's gone. He finds himself in a tough spot. He finds himself unable to care for himself after living so big and so large. So what does he do? An act of desperation he goes and he hires himself out to a citizen of the country and he is forced to do the unthinkable for a young Jewish boy. Come here boy, I want you to feed the hogs. No decent Jewish boy would ever be caught feeding hogs. But that's the only thing he could do. And it says in scripture, that he would have gladly eaten the pods that the swine were eating. I did some looking, it was a carob pod. I don't know anything about carobs. I'm, I mean, I just don't know. I don't, I'm not a plant guy, I'm, I'm a meat guy. And uh, the carob is a, is a kind of a long looking thing, four to 10 inches long, kind of bows, it's got seeds in it. When they're green, they're, you know, when they're right off the tree and they're fresh, they're green and they, they dry out, they turn brown and get all ugly and nasty. And apparently if you eat them, they kind of taste like some kind of chocolate. Uh, it's used in uh, health food, people use it as in their chocolate and that kind of stuff. It's, uh, um, it just doesn't sound real appetizing. <laughs> you know, you're gonna, and then sometimes the seeds are too hard to choose, so you have to spit them out. There's always another plus. You're, you're broke and you're eating these things that hang on the tree that you're feeding the hog and some of them are too hard to chew on. And uh, frankly, the kid has finally realized that I have reached the bottom of the proverbial barrel. And he does what so many of us have done when we get to that point. He says in verse 18, I will get up and go to my father. Right after he says, even my father's hired servants have more than enough bread to eat. He says, hey, I'll go home. At least I'll get a meal. Maybe he'll hire me in. Maybe I can get a job. Maybe I'll sleep out in the tent, but at least I won't starve to death. You know, hunger and poverty are great motivators. You know that? When you're poor, you'll do what you have to do to survive. And when you're hungry, you will do all you can to find a meal. They're great motivators. So the kid does the unthinkable after he gets done feeding the swine. He takes off and he heads back towards dad's house. I, I kind of I marveled kind of marveled about this, because in the scripture as you read it, the, he goes back to his father. I, I found this true in my own life. Sometimes when you run away from things, you only run far enough so that if things go really bad, you can still get back. You ever notice? I ran away once when I was four, okay? And, and I packed everything I could in this little, mom was telling me this little broken down record player thing, I might even have been six or seven, 
and, and I put it all in there, and I ran out to the curb. I was running away. And uh, that was about as far as I could get because uh, I realized then that I didn't have any food or anything, and so I ran back. But I found that most people that run, when they truly flee in this case, they only go far enough so that if they have to, they can find their way back. You know, you're not so far gone that you can't find your way back to God. Nobody in this room is so far gone that God is out of your reach. None of us will ever get to the point where God isn't there. None of us will ever be to the point while we walk the face of this earth that we can't make that trip from where we are to where God is. And that's part of the picture here, that God is always available. So in verse 20, and he got up and he came to his father, but was still a long way off. His father saw him and felt compassion and ran to him. I'll tell you the truth, this is the most amazing picture in Scripture. Spurgeon says, and I wrote it. I know some of you don't know who Charles Spurgeon was. Charles Spurgeon said this about this passage. The eyes of mercy are quicker than the eyes of repentance. Even the eyes of our faith is dim compared with the eye of God's love. He sees a sinner long before a sinner sees him. The father has been waiting for his son to return. He has stood and waited, whether he was looking far away or close, he was out there. He knew, his, he knew his son was gone. He hoped in his heart that his son would return. And he stood and he waited for that son to come back. Did he stand there all day? I don't know, it's a parable. But the picture is that God stands and waits for the wayward sinner to return to him. And he's standing and he's waiting. And he is literally like a racer, crouched in the blocks, ready to go. Have you ever watched Usanian Bolt run? That big, that fast runner from Nairobi or wherever. Boy, when that dude comes out of the rack, when he comes out of them, stop. Like a bullet. God is standing, waiting to receive those who will come back to him. There is no doubt that this man knew in his heart or hoped deeply that his son would return. And why is it important? Because when you think about God in this passage, if you give God an inch, God will give you an inch. He will give you an even greater amount of room. If you move towards God a foot, he will begin to move to you a mile. The closer you draw to God, the closer he becomes to you. The father waited for the sons to return. Picture this, God in all of his majesty and glory, God steps off the throne and pursues the son. And the son is waiting, he's there, and he don't see him coming because grace and mercy saw him before the repentant son had a chance to react. The father sought the son after the son began to return. You cannot outweigh God's grace. And in this passage we see, verse 20 says, and while he was still a long way off, the father saw him and felt compassion for him and ran and embraced him and kissed him. I want to ask a real personal question. How many of you still kiss your kids? I got a 35 year old son. He's hairy kid, ain't got no hair on his head, but big, tall kid. He's a cop, right? When he was a teenager, or even before that, I saw, I saw Michael Douglas give his father a kiss on TV, one of those goofy award shows. And I thought, well, that's weird. I never kissed my dad after I was about five. And I thought, I'm the one that's weird. That's his son. 
He loves his son, and his son loves him. So I started giving my son a kiss every time I see him. And even when he was in high school and we were at the vocational school or something, he got a kiss and I got one back. Why? Because I love my son. But in this passage, this isn't just a kiss. The word literally means kissed and kissed again and kissed still again and kissed and kissed and kissed and kissed. He's falling on his son, he's got him in his arms, and he proceeds to just bury this kid in kisses. Why? Because he loved him, and his son had come back, and he had his arms around him, and he wasn't worried about where he was anymore, and he was in great joy because his son has returned home, and he started kissing him, and he didn't want to let go. We had a son that spent time in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I tell you, when he came home, when the first time I saw him, I put my arms around him and I didn't want to let go because he was home and he was safe and I knew it. But please, don't forget, this kid had forsaken everything that dad was about, the home, tradition, his God. And frankly, the kid probably still stunk like pig poop. Stuff just don't wash off. If you think the lamb smelled from the lost sheep in the, the first part of the story, you can bet this boy had a cloud around him, kind of like pig ping from peanuts, you know what I mean? But you know what? The stench of the pigs compared to the love of the fathers was nothing. I don't know a father in the room that wouldn't run to his wayward child even if they smelled like pigs, because pigs is just a thing, but a son is forever. And then he goes on to say, the father says, he says to the father, I have sinned against heaven in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his slaves, quickly, bring out the best robe, not just a robe. Just don't go get the bathrobe. Don't get the one we used over the horse. Bring me the best robe and put it on him. And bring me the ring and put it on him. Put the sandals on him. Do it in public so they can see that he's restored to his position. The idea here is, is that when he put the robe and the ring on him, this gave the kid the authority to use all of the assets that the father had. He could do anything he wanted with the property except sell it. He could use the buildings for parties. He could reap the grain. He could rent part of it out. He could do whatever he wanted with it as if it was his own, but it was still his father's. That's the kind of authority and freedom that comes from having the robe and the ring. Each one of us has been given a robe and a ring, if you will, when we come to know Christ. The riches of the kingdom are, are ours. The depth of the spirit and how far you want to go is yours. All you have to do is pursue it. God will allow you to become as deep in his word as you desire to go. There are no limits. Then he says, kill the fatted calf. We don't use that term much anymore because most of us don't farm. But the whole idea was this dude was on reserve for another great event. And they didn't just cook. These people are my kind of people. They kept cooking until everybody was done eating. Okay. So they may have cooked for hours. And I love a good cookout. How many of you in the spring and in the fall when somebody fires up the grill and you're standing there and all of a sudden you get that waft of steak going by your nose and you go, hmm, I need to go visit whoever that is. I look across the window and my neighbors every now and I see that big plume of smoke coming up. I'm going, boy, I'm jealous. I want to be over there. So the smell wafted through the land. And then he brought in musicians. He called for musicians to come, and they danced, and they sang, and they had a party. Why? Because the son who was dead and gone is now back. 
Luke 15 and 10 reminds us there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The day I got saved, my mother called a little church in southern Ohio, and, uh, and I once told her, I said, well, I went to that church. I didn't think a heck of a lot of it. Kind of dull, kind of dry. And she rebuked me, as my mother often did. And she said, I want you to know there was a round of amens and hallelujahs the day I told them you got saved. They rejoiced, along with the angels. It brings us to the older brother. The older brother is a picture of the Pharisees and the scribes, hard-hearted, stuck on their religion. We see that. We see that in verse 25. Now his older son was in the field when he came, he approached the house and heard music and dancing, and he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things might be. The servant was probably a pre-adolescent young man who uh, wasn't allowed to be into the big party, so they'd have a small party outside, and that's what he did. He called one of these kids over, and the kid said, hey, look, dude, your brother's come home, and your dad's having a whale of a good time inside having a party. And then, like the religious leaders of the day, he threw his arms around his chest and said, I will not. It was at this point that I believe the scribes and Pharisees' heads exploded because they knew exactly what Jesus was saying. He was saying to them that you hard-hearted religious people, you have forgotten that the greatest thing that can ever happen is a sinner be reunited with the God of all creation. Hello, Israel, that was your job. You were supposed to be a light under the world. Pharisees, you were supposed to shed that light and spread that light. Scribes, same job, and all of you allowed yourselves to be enamored with the hardness of religion, and you have forgotten about the relationship aspect of being in a relationship with God himself. And he sat down and said, I'm not going to do it. Who really is the prodigal son? Who really is the prodigal son in this passage? I would say the oldest son is the one that had the greatest sin, because when faced with an opportunity to restore his relationship, he hid behind his religious fervor. And then he says, look, in verses 29, he says, look, for so many years I have been serving you and I have never neglected a command of yours. Kind of reminds me of Mark 10, 20, where the young rich guy says, teacher, I have kept all these things from my youth. Nobody keeps all the laws. That's why the law didn't work, because human flesh is weak. We couldn't do it. And he says, look, you've never even given me a goat. You've uh, allowed this guy to devour your wealth of prostitutes. You killed the fatted calf. And I'm supposed to rejoice in that. Remember, the older son was going to get two-thirds of the family wealth. Everything that the old man had was technically his. And I'm not so sure he wasn't worried about how this affected his bottom line. You know, Dad, you're giving away my stuff. And the father says, but we had to celebrate and rejoice. This brother of yours was dead and now has begun to live and was lost and has been found. Why is this my favorite parable? If you know me very well, you know I'm an emotional guy. You probably see that in my face. But I like this one because there's no end. There's not, and so it went, and they lived happily ever after, and the brothers were reunited, had many children, and all is well. No, it ends. It ends exactly where the God of heaven intended it to. You know how it ends? It ends with the ball in your court. 
it's your turn to read this parable and figure out which one of these children you are. Will you be hard-hearted and religious, like the older brother who can't find joy in the return of a younger brother? Or are you like the one who has wandered away and found himself knee-deep in a pigsty, trying to find enough to live, but finally says, I shall return to my father, where I will at least have enough to eat. This is my favorite parable because I identify with the kid in the pigsty. I identify with him because, frankly, so many times I have wandered off the reservation. I have found myself in places I shouldn't have been. Not physically, but thinking about things that should have never come across my mind. I found myself wandering off my father's land, wanting all of the riches that he promises me, and I want them now. Give it to me now, God, I want my stuff now. It's like these people that claim to be living your best life now. If you're living your best life now, you're in a world of hurt, my friend. This should be the worst your life will ever get. To the believer, this is as bad as it gets. To the unbeliever, this is as good as it's ever going to be. And I look at this passage and I see myself not only in the kid in the pigsty, but I see myself in the older brother that sometimes I harden myself up with my religion and I say, look, that's just too bad, kid. Get over it. But I think the real message here is that God leaves the throne to chase down that one repentant son as a picture of his inescapable grace, his undefinable mercy, and his absolute depth of love that no man, no man will ever know the bottom of. You can't outlove him. You can't outgrace him. You can't outmercy him. You will never earn that grace. You will never earn that love, and you will never earn that mercy. These are strictly the commodity of God, and he distributes them as he sees fit. Paul Grice, born a sinner, still living in the same sinful body, but I have been redeemed by the Father, who in November of 1987 came off the throne and ran to me and said, you're my son. Let's pray. Father God, in this room are some hurts. You know it better than anybody else. You know the hurts. You know the pain. You know those that are separated. You know those that have wandered away from you. You know those that have never known you. Lord, today I would ask that you would bring that together. That those that don't know you would be to have that opportunity to experience you running from the throne to meet them, to extend your mercy and your grace and your love. And to those that have wandered away that are your children, I, I would pray that you draw them back, that you would reach to them with your love and your mercy, and you would pull them back in, and they would be receptive to that. And I would pray that this church never lose its zeal for preaching your word, and that we would never lose our desire to glorify you, and that in this day, all that we say and do and think and act and carry on in brings nothing but glory and honor and praise to you. And that's in Christ's name I ask and pray. Amen.